You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. No matter how good a job Apple and Google are doing, I think there's always a need for a third party. This is why third parties in security always exist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me, as always, is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. As always, we've got some fun stories to share, and later in the show, we speak with Michael Murray from Lookout. He shares information about vulnerabilities specific to mobile devices. And we are back with some stories to share. Joe, you're up first this week. What do you got? Now, this one comes from Dan Under. Dave. <laughs> uh, right. And, Crikey. And the, the Australian Competition <laughs> and Consumer Commission has this story on their website. And it's about Steve. It's okay. probably not his real name, All right. but he is a, a retiree, 65-year-old man, lives alone. And not long after his wife passed away, he receives an unexpected telephone call with an investment opportunity. Okay. Right? These people are essentially cold calling him, and it, it sounds very professional. And the people who call him seem to have excellent knowledge of investment matters. All right. So they know all the lingo and everything. Right. They answer all of Steve's questions. Their initial contact is followed up with a call from senior advisors. Right. These are people who are allegedly specialized in advising seniors on what to do with their money. Right. So, I mean, that's not an atypical process there where you have someone who reaches out to try to generate leads. Right. And then it's followed up by someone higher up. Seems legit. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. His current investments weren't doing so great. Mm-hmm. So he decides he's going to go ahead and, and send them a small portion of his money. Okay. And he winds up sending them about 5% of what he has, which is around $10,000. Okay. If you're going to take a risk, you know, that seems like a reasonable thing to do. I'm going to see what happens with this first little bit and see if it turns out well. If it doesn't turn out well, I'm not out that much. Right. I'm, I'm not hurt that bad. So he gives them $10,000 and they send him to a very professional looking website. They even give him an account that he can log in on. Mm-hmm. And the website shows his money growing as the market goes up. So he's got a way to track his investment on this website. Right. There's no investment. His money's gone already. <laughs> that's that's the sad part. Right. But he thinks it's not. He thinks it's there and that he's doing quite well. Mm-hmm. So over the course of the next 12 months, he winds up transferring $200,000 to these people. Mm. And then the first clue he has that something's wrong is when the website goes down and he can't reach anybody by phone. Okay. Then he starts doing some research. So a key takeaway from this story is before you send any money, that's when you do your research. Unfortunately, this guy did his research after he sent the money, and he finds that the company is not registered with the Australian Securities Investment Commission. But as we've talked about before, he's too embarrassed to tell anybody about this. Hmm. He does get contacted by the police when they discovered his name on bank transfers made to known fraudsters. The police have heard about this, and they find out that he's made the transfer, so they contact him. So he's lost over $200,000. Right. But he's too embarrassed to let anyone know about it. Yep. These people fly the coop, so he can't get in touch with them anymore. Right. And he figures it's just done, And but then he gets a call from the police. Right. And the police just contact him and say, you know, these were fraudsters. And he's like, of course, I know that now. <laughs> yeah, I'm well aware of that. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for telling. But <laughs> right. here's what else happens next. Okay. Then this guy gets a call from somebody with an offer to help him get his money back from the original investment. Oh. Right. 
But this time he's smart and he calls the police and he says, what's going on? And they go, no, no, this is a follow up scam. They're just trying to get more money out of you with your sunk cost fallacy, mm-hmm. right? So they know that you've thrown a lot of money down the hole and they're going to try to get more money out of you with the belief that you can get this money back out of the hole, which you can't. Right. That money's gone. Uh, so they try to give him a little bit more hope to right. say you could, at least you could get some of this money back. But how much do you want to bet that in order to do that, he had to send them some more money? Sure. That's exactly yeah. what he had to do, oh. send them more money. Uh, that's awful. Taking it's advantage terrible. of uh, folks in their later years, worked their whole lives to save up money. Yep. And these people trying to steal it from them. Check on your parents, folks. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's a great point. Share these kinds of stories with your parents. And right. that, especially that part about not being embarrassed to tell someone. Right. We talk a lot on here about inoculation. Yep. Right. Just by knowing what the scam is or knowing what the lie is, that inoculates you against falling victim to it. Right, right. It's like a vaccine, a, a truth vaccine. But you need to tell your folks that you, need, you yeah. don't ever be embarrassed to share something with me. I have a friend who works with these sorts of things, and she suggested to me one of the best ways you can approach this is go to your parents and frame it this way. Say, nothing would make me happier than being able to help you with something like this. Right. Because your parents worry they don't want to be a burden. Right. So they're worried that they're going to cost you time, cost you money. But if you frame it to them and say, nothing would make me happier than to be able to help you with a situation like this, that helps remove that fear that your parents have right. of being a burden. Right. So that's a useful uh, suggestion there. And then when they do call, you have to, you can't be like, Ugh, right. this again. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. <laughs> Remember what I said about nothing would make me happier? Well, that was a lie. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I am I am ashamed of you. You have disappointed me. No, no. no. Love your parents. Your parents right. love you. Love them back and take good care of them. Yes. All right. Well, that's that's a good one. Boy, it's sad though, isn't it? It is sad. It's terrible. It's yeah. it's you know, I just my heart breaks for these people. They're yeah. getting taken advantage of. If something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Right. Right. Although it sounds like in this case it, it sounded legit. That and that's what they do. It sounds legit. They knew the lingo. Right. So this, this was a guy who was used to having investments. And he was hooked by right. these folks. Right. So. And the amazing part is that they actually set up a website for him to actually watch things grow. That's right. pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good story, Joe. My story this week uh, comes courtesy of friend of the show, Graham Cluley. Ah. Uh, once again, uh, he had a guest author on his website. This is from Bob Covello. And uh, the title of the article is Phone Scam Exploits Russian Hacking Fears. We're all familiar with these phony tech support scam calls. Right. So this is a variation on that. This is people calling and asking if you know people with Russian names. So in this situation, the person who wrote this article got a call and said that Russians had connected to his network and that the caller was going to help fix it. Uh huh. And she said, do you know Dmitry Andreski, comrade? And he said, no, I, well, actually the person in this case said, yes, I do. They're, they're friends of mine. Uh, <laughs> cause he knew it was a scam. But basically, I mean, getting back to the point of this is that <laughs> what they're doing is they're taking advantage of all of the stories in the news about right. Russians yep. attacking. It's front of mind. Front of mind. Yep. They're tying into that a variation on the tech support scam, taking advantage of something that is, I think, a, a, a fear and, and seems plausible. That the Russians could be in your system. So what's the payoff here? Is it just well, like the tech support scam it's, it's, where yeah. it's like you give me a credit card number and I'll get rid of the Russians? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. We have evidence here that the Russians have broken into your computer and for the low, low price of, 
you know, $1,000, I will clear your computer magically and mystically. All you have to do is turn over complete control over your system. So let me see if I got this right. <laughs> the, the Russian government, who has some of the best hackers in the world, yeah. has control of my network. Right. And thankfully, you have called, and for the low, low price of $1,000 or something, you're going to get rid of a nation-state advanced persistent threat yes. from my network. Mm -hmm. What a deal. Yes. Just <laughs> just give me, hand over that credit card, Joe, right. and I will clear off your computer. Shut up and take no my money. No fuss, no muss. <laughs> That's right. Just something to keep uh, keep an eye on. Again, the article, if you want to dig into it, is over on Graham Cluley's website. A little variation on the tech support scam. All right, Joe, it is time for our catch of the day. Joe, this one comes from a listener named Andrew. He sent in this story. You're a pet owner, aren't you? I am. I have a dog and three cats. Wow. That's two that, cats too many, that's, as I like to say. That's a menagerie, yeah. <laughs> right. We have a dog also. And of course, there's few things in life sadder than losing a pet. It's a tough thing. So uh, listener Andrew sent in, and here's what he wrote us. He said... Two years ago, we put down our 13-year-old family dog. She was obviously a big part of our family, and it was highly emotional when we lost her. Fast forward to today, my wife is finally ready to entertain our kids and adopt a new puppy. One day, she started showing me pictures of a few possible pups from two different breeders she found online, and really started to fall in love with a cute little lab puppy in Texas. She reached out to the individual offering the puppy via text and started to explore what it would take to adopt her. They exchanged several texts where the seller assured her how the puppy was AKC certified, sent photos of the parents, etc. My wife was excited and told them she wanted to move forward. I had purposely let her run with all this, but when she told me she had made her decision and that we would have to send payment to the breeder via MoneyGram, Bing, my, flag. my guard immediately went up. <laughs> I suggested she ask the breeder if we could all hop on the phone to talk through the process, which she did, and we waited for the response. In the meantime, I did a quick who is search on the breeder's domain and was directed to a site, PetScams.com, which hmm. documented that this domain belonged to an individual who had been reported for scamming people by posting stolen photos of puppies, taking money from would-be buyers, and then disappearing. As we waited to hear back from the seller, I told her about my research, explaining that the MoneyGram request was the red flag that prompted me to do a little snooping. She was a bit shocked, but then started to disclose some of the odd things she noticed in her exchange. For example, the seller's English wasn't so good. They also misunderstood a question about the puppy's temperament as a question about temperature, mm. responding with something that flat out made no sense. In hindsight, she admitted she dismissed some of this, assuming it was an older individual she was corresponding with, but also because she was emotionally attached to the idea of adopting this cute little puppy. Right, that's the hook. She was feeling a bit foolish about being tricked, but relieved we caught it. I suggested she reply to the seller with a sense of relief, mentioning that we're expecting a large sum of money from a long-lost relative in Nigeria. <laughs> and that as soon as we receive it, we will promptly send their fee via MoneyGram. Uh-huh. So the story ultimately did end well. She just found a puppy from a local rescue. Oh, very good. Who accepted payment options other than MoneyGram. The puppy is happy, home, and figuring out what a home with four children is all about. Well, that's great that it ended well. Yeah. But boy, I mean, this plays into so many of the things we always talk about. Right. The emotional component. Pictures of a puppy. Yep. That, but that'll tug at your heartstrings. Yeah, she's already emotionally invested in getting the puppy. And she likes this particular puppy. And the scammers know this. And because of that, she dismissed what should have been several red flags. Correct. Understandable. 
that this was an older person who might not be so good at using technology like texting? Didn't so much dismiss as rationalize. Rationalize, right. Exactly. That's a better way to put it. Yeah. I do think that the biggest red flag here for me, if I were in this position, would have been when I said temperament and you respond with something about the dog's temperature. Right. As someone who's owned a dog now for almost 15 years, by the time this airs, my dog will be 15 years old. He's an old dog. One of the things that I was looking into, he's my first dog too, actually. I've never Hmm. owned a dog before this. People talk about temperament. It's a very common feature of a dog that gets discussed a lot. This breed has a good temperament. This breed has a bad temperament or can have a bad temperament or how you raise them will dictate their temperament. Certainly, if you're a dog breeder, this would not be a new term for you. (laughs) Temperament would not be a word that you should misunderstand. Right. Well, all's well that ends well, as we said. So again, thanks to our listener, Andrew, for sending this in. And that is our catch of the day. Coming up next, we've got my interview with Michael Murray from Lookout. And we're back. Joe, I recently spoke with Michael Murray. He's the vice president of security intelligence at Lookout. And we spoke about mobile devices, specifically about phishing attacks on mobile devices and some of the vulnerabilities there are on on that side of things. So here's my conversation with Michael Murray. I was talking to a customer recently and they mentioned that they did a survey on their Active Directory and over 75% of the authentication requests were now coming from mobile platforms rather than from traditional desktops and uh, and laptops. As the world moves more to that platform, the attackers are too. And what we've seen is that the more sophisticated attackers go first, right? Uh, Unlike what we saw in the traditional evolution of the attack landscape on PCs where you know, if you look back in the 90s, you saw the, the, you know, the script kiddies came first in a lot of ways. We saw the web defacements and things like that long before we saw global cyber crime and, and nation state espionage. On the mobile platform, it's gone the other way. And so the sophisticated phishing attackers have moved to the mobile platform first. Those folks have moved almost exclusively to phishing against a mobile platform and to installing malware on a mobile platform. And the, the interesting thing about that is... When you move away from the desktop, when you're talking about social engineering, the mobile platform is rich in that I no longer have to just send you an email. I can send you an email because we all get email on our phones these days. But more interestingly than that, if I want to evade the corporate email controls, whether those controls are in the cloud in you know G Suite or Office 365 or right, the traditional exchange server, everybody's got anti-phishing and products there. If I want to attack your mobile device, I can send you a text message. I can send you an iMessage if you're on iOS or a Hangout if you're on G Suite or Android. I can send you Facebook message. I can send you Snapchat. I can send you WeChat, uh, WhatsApp. And I, I'm too old and not cool enough to know whatever the other 50 things I could probably be sending you messages on that aren't protected by the corporation. So as a a sophisticated attacker who wants to attack a person, I no longer have to go through the choke point of email. And, And that gives me so many more options as a sophisticated attacker to really trick you. Now, what is it about the fact that this device is mobile? I'm thinking of the the difference in the state of mind between me sitting at my desk at my computer at work and I'm on the move. I might be out and about. I might be traveling to a customer site. I might be in the grocery store shopping. I I might be at a movie. You know, what is the difference that, that opens me up to different types of attacks from one location to the other? 
you intuited something really interesting. And actually, if you if you look at the history of social engineering, urgency has always been a driver of social engineering, right? Uh, you know, the, the traditional pretexts, and you see these in like the social engineering capture the flag. If I can get someone reacting from unconscious process, right? If I can move their processing from a very deliberate state to a state where they're somewhat distracted, they're more likely to, to give me the information you're talking about. So like you said, if you're sitting at your desk quietly relaxed, you might be more thoughtful about the communication that you get than if you're in all of those places. So the mobility aspect gives you the ability to catch someone off guard a little bit. The other part to this, though, and I think it's much more interesting, and the research that we've done on our own customers and our own uh, user base actually shows that users on a mobile platform are, even with a traditional style of phishing attack, users on a mobile platform are about three times more likely to fall for a phishing attack on the mobile platform than on a traditional desktop, even with the same phishing attack. And the reason for that is partially what you talked about, right? Partially, we're more distracted when we're using a mobile device just by the nature of it. But more than that, if you think about the the tradition of anti-phishing efforts and the security awareness efforts, all the things we've taught our users over the last 15 years, whatever time frame you want to put that in, are very PC-centric. And what do we tell them? Hover over the links with your mouse. Mm-hmm. Well, good luck doing that on a mobile platform. Look at the site and make sure it looks like the site that you're used to. Well, by nature, the sites in a mobile browser look different than they look on a PC. So all of these pieces come together to create a platform and an opportunity for the fisher to evade all the things we taught our users over the last 15 to 20 years. It's not just the fact that they're mobile and distracted. It's also that we've become a victim of our own success in some way. We've, we've taught people how to recognize a phishing email, and then we've given them a little box to put in their hands where none of that works anymore. I think there's a perception that the mobile operating systems themselves have a higher level of security than the desktop systems. The fact that they are within a certain degree of walled gardens for getting apps, newer operating systems, they, they don't have the, the history of, of attacks that, that perhaps the desktop systems do. Do you think that gives people a false sense of security? 100%. So it's a funny juxtaposition of a bunch of factors all at the same time. Now, here's the deal. I actually agree with the statement. I think if you give me a modern iOS or Android device, you know, a Pixel or an iPhone X or whatever, and you put that up against a circa 2003 Windows 2000 Win32 device, I will tell you the mobile platform is a heck of a lot more secure. That said, the attackers that were attacking Windows in 2003 are not nearly as sophisticated as the attackers that are attacking mobile in 2018. And so while the OS has evolved, so have the attackers. And so we've created a much more secure OS. There's no question about that. We've also created an OS that is much harder to secure, right? It's, it's one of the reasons you don't see the traditional security vendors playing in the mobile security space nearly as much. If you think about almost all of the security products that we've built for endpoint security over the history of computer security, you know, the Symantec's, the McAfee's, even the modern and really advanced stuff, the silences, the crowd strikes, the Sentinel ones, those folks, they're all built with the idea of ring zero access to the device, right? I could literally wire myself into the kernel and I could see everything that's happening on device. 
But on a mobile platform, it's much harder to secure that platform. We, we at Lookout know this, right? We, we have built a company around being good at this. But it's not nearly as easy to be a security solution on a mobile platform because that walled garden extends to everyone. While it is more secure inherently than the old Win32 or the Mac OS or the, the Linux device by itself, those devices are more inherently secure. They're also harder to secure. So that false sense of security, yeah, we've. it's a true statement to say those platforms are more secure. It's also a true statement to say those platforms while they are more secure, if they have a problem, they're harder to keep secure. And even beyond that, you're not looking at the script kitty attacker. You're talking about nation states and serious cyber criminals. And those people are investing millions or tens of millions of dollars into figuring out a way around that security. So I think it's both true and false all at the same time, if that makes any sense. I want you to bear with me while I make what I think is going to be an imperfect uh, metaphor here. But you know, I remember back when I was a kid coming up, you know, the movie Jaws and interviews with Steven Spielberg, who said that part of what made that movie successful and what made it so scary was that they couldn't show the shark, that the shark didn't work very well. And so by hiding the shark, that made the shark even more scary to the viewers because they filled everything in with their imagination. It strikes me that when I have seen success with a lot of these phishing attempts, Sometimes less is more. A message that says, hey, have you seen this? may be more successful than three or four paragraphs of, you know, I, I'm more likely to, to catch on to a, a long narrative that maybe something is up. Do you think there's something to that? Am I getting anywhere with that metaphor? You are. You, you actually, to, to flip it over and tell you a story, one of my team came to me the other day and said, check out this phishing message that I got through WhatsApp. The message was simple. I found someone posting pictures of you online and a link. That was yeah. it. The whole message. Think about how powerful that is. And it's exactly the metaphor you just used, right? right. It, it sparks your curiosity in a way that if someone had sent a longer email, or even if the text message had been three sentences, I found someone posting naked pictures of you online. Well, my first thought is, I've never taken naked pictures. Right. I'm not going to click on that. And that's clearly a problem, right? By leaving it so vague, they actually opened up the opportunity for the user to fill it in with their imagination. And, and man, I will tell you, the more I see phishing messages against the mobile platform, the more that less is more thing comes into play. And, and we've seen some incredibly sophisticated ones. It's so powerful. And especially because we're so used to, you know, you talked about the walled garden in app stores, but I think we've been lulled into the belief that many things online are a walled garden, right? We know that email is full of phishing scams and spam and all of this because we've been doing that for 25 or 30 years. We still think that Facebook is a walled garden. And if you don't believe that, go look. Everyone's got friends who post things on Facebook they would never say in the real world, Yeah, right? It's like, I, I'm on a computer. I'm only talking to my friends so I can trust anything that they say and they can trust anything that I say. And, and we have that belief all over. You know, Snapchat exists as a company with the idea that all of those messages are private and disappear. Well, what better place to send you a message to scam you than a place that you inherently believe will be secure? Ditto all these encrypted end-to-end -end messengers, you know, the WhatsApps, the, the signals, the wickers, all of these, right? We've been lulled into the belief that these are environments in which we can communicate securely and privately with our friends. Any message that comes through that channel, I already am inclined to believe 
you, by, by believing in the marketing of the product, that that message has more security than the email that I got on the same topic. And so, you know, you're much more likely to click on those things. This is why that re the research that we've been doing finds that the mobile platform is so fertile a ground for these targets. And, and we've started to see more of that. And I think 15 years from now, we will probably treat all of those channels the same way we treat email. We will have that same inherent suspicion. But for now, we really buy it. We really buy the idea that, that messages sent to me directly on my phone, well, they require that somebody knows my phone number. And clearly, I only give my phone number to people that I actually trust and want to talk to me. So most of the time, those are real things. So, Michael Murray from Lookout, lots of good information shared there. Indeed. One of the big factors here, as he points out, is that mobile devices now account for 75% of Active Directory logins. Mm -hmm. That's astounding. I had no idea that was the case. Mobile users are three times more likely to fall for a phishing attempt for all the reasons he points out. Mostly, it's a UI issue, right? Right. Where you, you can't do on a mobile device what you can do on a PC or a laptop to make sure it works. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think that is probably also contributes to the problem of mobile security is these are users' devices. They're your own devices. It's the BYOD situation, mm -hmm. right? So it's not like a device that the company has management authority over. I mean, they could put policies on it, like if you enter the wrong code 10 times, your mobile device gets wiped right. and everything's gone. These are your own devices. There's a spectrum of how much is this mine and how much is this theirs. Right. And if, if my company issues me a laptop... That's theirs. And it's theirs. And so I'm going to be extra careful that I don't do anything that's going to put them at risk or put me in any sort of embarrassing or compromising position. Right. But I think it's a little fuzzier when you bring the device to the table. Three takeaways from this. Yeah. One is that ambiguity is the ally of the social engineer. Mm -hmm. You know, like you said with JAWS. Yeah. Let the user's imagination do the work for you mm -hmm. as a social engineer. Two, there's a false sense of security that we get from these apps like Snapchat, Telegram, and whatever. It, and that kind of works to the attacker's advantage. I'm in the same boat that Michael is. I don't know how to use these apps. <laughs> you know, right. Snapchat right. infuriates uh -huh. me. I have it, but I, I don't yeah. understand how to use it. I still refer to Snapchat as the Snapchat, just for the uh -huh. sake of my children and irritating them. <laughs> yes, the Facebook. <laughs> the, the Facebook Snapchat. and the yeah. internets. And uh -huh. Here's the third takeaway. And that is that it's really helpful to have a third party come in and evaluate your security mm -hmm. because you do tend to get blind to a lot of things. I remember when I was in uh, doing development, I'd be sitting there for a couple of hours banging my head against a problem and I couldn't resolve it. And I would just call one of my coworkers over and say, can you take a look at this to see what my problem is? And usually it was my coworker, Nancy, and she'd come over, take two seconds and go, well, there's your problem and point to a line of code and say that that operator is wrong. And I'd mm -hmm. be like, ah, I've been looking at that operator, glossing over it for an hour. Right. And I just never saw it. And I think that happens organizationally too, that you start thinking about these things, but you've already got a preconceived notion in your head about the way things are. And there's probably some kind of group think that plays into this as well. Yeah. And you just can't see the forest for the trees or you can't see the vulnerability for the software. As we've seen, there's sure to be some holes here and there. Guarantee there's holes in everything. Yeah. 
All right. Well, that is our show. As always, thanks to everybody for listening. And thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more about them at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thank you.